On December 13, 2017, Cedrola was diagnosed with breast cancer. She overcame this diagnosis and in the past few years realised that her story is meant to be shared to help others. Cedrola is on a mission to inspire you to know that a diagnosis is not a death sentence, but a learning experience. And she's here to help business leaders to understand equity and inclusion will make your whole organisation stronger. This episode, you will learn that our social, emotional and personal challenges don't define us, but what we do with what we learn does. I guess I would go back to when I was 16. So when I was 16, I had a lump removed in my from my left breast and it turned out to be nothing. And the only reason that I noticed it was because I was doing a research paper on breast cancer because back in the day, breast cancer wasn't something that people really talked about. There were no pink ribbons. There was none of that. Um, but I was, so I was doing a report on breast cancer and I checked myself and I found a lump and told my parents and we went and, and the doctor removed it and said, oh, it was just a benign, you know, lump or cyst. So fast forward and I'm now an adult woman and my breasts have had lumps and bumps for years. So I've always gotten them checked. Uh, back and forth. So it's been mammograms, ultrasounds, breast examinations, all these different things all through the years. The interesting thing was that at this time, um, my my nurse practitioner is very used to me. I'd been going to her for many years and we always joked about how busy my little breasts were and <laughs> and how, oh, well, you know, I feel, we feel something strange. Let's go and do a mammogram and ultrasound. So it almost felt like I was doing this almost every six months for the last, for the two years. And then I went to see her and she said, she said, so what happened was I was feeling my breasts, but I was also thinking I'm getting older and your breasts get more fibrous as you get older, because I'd been having regular mammograms and ultrasounds, but I did feel, you know, something was happening, but I was like, well, nothing's showing up. So I guess that everything's okay. So I went into my nurse practitioner on a regular appointment and she says, you know, this over here feels very different. It doesn't feel like it's supposed to feel. And so I said, okay, and she, and this was October of 2017. I think it was end of October, maybe early November. And she said, I'm going to call over to this doctor's office and let them know that you're coming. You need to call and make an appointment. And I said, fine. But of course, with so many years of going through all of this, I'm not thinking much of it. And time passes very quickly. I'm sure you know. <laughs> and so I it was about a month later that I called and made an appointment and the doctor said I would like for you to get new scans and an ultrasound before you come in for your appointment so we have fresh scans and I was like that's fine. So I went in and had my scans done and they found a lump in my left breast, and so, but the right breast, which was the problem breast, you know, where I go in to meet with the doctor, we're both looking at the scans, and I've looked at these scans for so long that I'm, I know what I'm looking for, and I don't see it. And she says, I don't see anything. And I said, I don't either. She says, but I'm looking at your breasts, and as you could see my breasts, in person, they looked different. Uh, the one breast, the right breast, which is where the cancer was found, the nipple was pointing downward instead of upward. And so she said, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and take a biopsy and see what's going on. And so she did that right in the office. And she did a punch biopsy. So there are different types of biopsies. She did a punch biopsy right there in the office. It was a Wednesday. And so we did that on Wednesday. 
On Thursday, I was fine. I went to a women's conference actually right here in Boston and had a great time. Didn't have much pain or anything. Then on the Friday, I went in to have a needle biopsy done on the left side because remember I told you they'd seen a lump and they wanted to do a biopsy. So we did that. And I was in so much pain after that biopsy. I told my husband, I said, you know, I don't know what she punched on Wednesday, but I don't think it was flesh because the way the pain that I'm having with this needle biopsy that I know went into flesh is nothing is, is, is so much more augmented than the pain that I felt when I had the punch biopsy. So I went through the weekend and we, and the appointment was set for Wednesday, December 13th. So I went into the office Wednesday, December 13th, 2017. And the doctor says, so you have invasive lobular carcinoma, breast cancer. And the biopsy that they did on the left side showed that there might be some cancer cells there as well. Those are the only things that I remember from that conversation. Because once I heard those words, my brain kind of went into overdrive. It just I remember thinking to myself, okay, stay calm. You're okay. Just listen to what she's saying. But at the same time, I'm thinking, if I'm dead, if this means that I'm dead and we, you know, what what happens if I die? Like, what's going to happen to my kids? I had two kids. Uh, My daughter was six. My son was 11. And then I, and then I thought, well, if I'm not dead, what kind of a legacy am I leaving? Am I happy with the things that I'm doing? Like, am I doing what I want to be doing in this life? And the answer was no. And so that day I had to go and get blood blood drawn. I mean, once you get diagnosed, it's like off to the races, basically. I went to get blood drawn that same day. The nurse told me, oh my goodness, Jesus loves you because I was able to get all of the scans that we need to get the following day, all in one day, which never happens. And so I got my blood drawn the following day, which was the 14th. I went in and I spent the whole day in the hospital doing different scans, bone scans, body scans, MRI, all kinds of scans. And then on Friday, I got a call from my doctor and she said that everything was clear. So the only place that they see the cancer was mostly my right breast. And so on Saturday, the 16th of December, 2017, my family and I took off on a planned vacation to Turks and Caicos and I left cancer in America. (laughs) 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 Literally, I was like, I'm not thinking about this. I'm just going to go. And then when I came back, I came back on the the 23rd of December Mm -hmm. and my phone, as soon as I hit American airspace and turned on my phone, my phone just went nuts. So I had all these messages, all these calls, meeting the oncologist, going to the doctor's office, all these different things. So I met my oncologist the day after Christmas and I started my chemo journey on January 2nd, 2018. And I was in active treatment, basically from January to July of 2018, and that is eight chemo sessions, double mastectomy, and radiation sessions, 30 radiation sessions. And there's nothing like having cancer and having to slow your role to give you space to really contemplate the trajectory of the rest of your life, Mm. however long that is, right? And that's what I did. I spent a lot of time in introspection, a lot of time there. When you're going through cancer treatments, there are different things that happen. Your body is fighting really hard, working with the meds that you're taking, but the meds are doing things to your body that are 
that can be painful, very frustrating, very unexpected. My tongue turned black. My nails turned black. I couldn't taste my food. My legs were in so much pain, my feet, my hands. Uh, so there are a lot of things that, that happen when you're going through treatments. But when I was going through chemo, I was still working. And uh, it was only when I went to surgery that I wasn't working. I was on short-term disability. And then for radiation, you just go every weekday morning and then you go to work. So in between all of that, it was like normal life had to happen mm -hmm. still while you're going through all of this. But when you really had to slow down, take time out because you were in so much pain, it gave you a lot of space. It gave me a lot of space to think about what I wanted to do and how I wanted to proceed. Was I, was I happy with the, traje the trajectory I was going? And if not... What was I going to do to change that trajectory and make it different? And I got kind of the answer in September of 2018 when I was laid off from my job. I was like, okay, that wasn't working. Mm. Now I'm not there. So what am I going to do? And so again, you know, just kind of trying to find my way. And there's so many different things that happen to get me to where I am here now that it's sometimes I look at it. It's like my life is completely different than it was then. And we always think, Oh, there it's too much to do, but really it all happens incrementally as you kind of, as you kind of make different intentional choices, life becomes different. Yeah. So what was it like being, because you said you were working full-time. That aside, being a mum is a full-time job, especially a mum to two, you know, they're not young children, but they're still children. You know, they still re are yeah. relying on you for most things. What was that like, being a mum and battling cats at the same time? I was so blessed. So my husband was working. My husband was there. Um, and my kids, when we... You know, from the very beginning, we told the kids what was happening. Uh, I th because for me, I feel like they needed to know because they were going to be affected in some way. And I didn't want to keep it from them because I didn't, because I knew that they could handle it as long as we were handling it. But yeah, you know, you're working full time and you're working because you want to keep things as normal as possible for the kids, of course, right? So you're still working. They knew the days that I was going to go to chemo. So I would go every other Tuesday. And of course, that day I didn't go to work. I went to chemo. But I'd come home and I'd be completely wiped out, really tired. And they would, they were so helpful. You know, my daughter spent a lot of time just sitting with me, coloring with me, listening to music with me, just being there for me. And my son would ask every so often, mommy, can I get you something? Do you need something? How are you feeling? You know, so they were engaged with it. And we, and I think that because of the way that we made them part of it, they weren't afraid of it. They were just like, mommy's just sick right now. She's going through something, but she's going to be okay. And I think that that was the thing when we told my son, he said, oh, you know, my friend's mom, that happened to her and she's okay. So I think you're going to be okay, mom. And so I said, okay, yeah, we're, we're going to be okay. And until we knew any different, we couldn't really tell them any different. You know, for, as far as I was concerned, I was going to be okay. So it worked out <laughs> that we're going to be okay. Once you once you overcame the cancer, what was what was the outlook then? Because you said you, the whole time you're going through this, you're thinking to yourself, "I don't know if I'm happy with what I'm doing in my life, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And then you were, you know, let go from your job, so you're now, you know, healthier or you know on the road to healthier, mm -hmm. but you are without a job, and obviously you you would want to work, you'd want to you know make money in some capacity. So what kind of thoughts and ideas were buzzing around your head to make money? Yeah, so it was really interesting. The timing couldn't have worked out any better. So my daughter was in the first, uh, second grade, actually. 
Well, she was second. She was in the second grade and she was getting bored with school, which kind of bothered my husband and me because she, she's the child that when she was going into kindergarten, we asked her, what is she most looking forward to? And she said, homework. And, <laughs> and you know, we're going, mm, I don't think they give you homework in kindergarten, but yay. And so she was starting to get bored and she kept saying, you know, I'm not learning anything. Can I not go to school today? That was the ultimate. I don't want to go to school today. Why not? Because I'm not learning anything. <laughs> and I thought, oh my gosh, this is, this is not good. So at that time, I was actually in the process of looking for a job. And I said to her, and I should have known better, but my because my daughter latches on to things that you say and she doesn't forget things. And I said to her, I said, honey, if I can find something that will allow me to, to be home most of the time, then we will homeschool. So then her next question was, mommy, when are we going to homeschool? And I hadn't found anything. Then I started driving for Uber as something, as a bridge. It was going to be a bridge kind of to, I'm going to keep looking for a job, but I'm driving Uber. And I fell in love with doing it because I love to drive and I really do love to in, encounter and engage new people. And so it turned out to be something that I really love to do that gave me all the flexibility that I needed in order to actually homeschool my daughter. So my husband and I homeschooled my daughter. My husband's a professor, so he has kind of a, a, a non-traditional schedule as well. So I would teach her, he would teach her, she would do her work. And she was a very good student, and we would go at her pace. So if she already understood something, we just kept moving forward. We just kept moving forward. We weren't going to hold her back if she knew what she was doing and we could, you know, continue to do it. And so that's what happened. So we homeschooled her for a year, a year and a half. And during that time, I was also Ubering. I was also starting and building a, a coaching and consulting business because I told you I like to engage people and I really wanted to feel like I was making a difference in people's lives or I was making a difference in this world, even if it were in my own little backyard. So I was doing that while I was homeschooling her and I was driving for Uber. Then in, of course, March of 2020, all of that kind of went away. Yeah, there was no one to Uber anywhere. <laughs> there was no one to Uber for, you know, initially it was like go out and there would be hardly any calls. But I went out maybe that week, that week that things really started to shut down. Maybe, I think it was the Sunday or the Monday, I went out and got maybe one or two calls. And I was like, it's just not worth it because I'm burning my gas and I'm not even making gas money back. <laughs> so I need to just, I'm done. I, there's nothing I can do. No one's going to ride in an Uber. And then that's when a week later, the, the whole world shut down. Everybody was like, stay home. It's going to be for two weeks. And so here we are two and a half years later. Going, <laughs> <laughs> oh, sure. Uh, so then, so I think that that worked to my benefit because I was building a coaching consulting business and I told people that I wanted to do speaking engagements. We were going into the summer and so we could be outside. So that worked out. And May of 2020 is when George Floyd was murdered. And I got calls to do speaking engagements, to do some consulting work, to do some coaching. And so it just kind of all fell into place. And so here we are now, it's 2022. I'm consulting, I'm working on a, a coaching course, and I'm able to do this, right? This wasn't something that I would have done or that I would have even thought of doing back then. I have my own podcast, which I started in September of 2020, and that was also something that I 
would have never thought even three months before I did the podcast to do a podcast. But that's what happens when you kind of do move forward intentionally. At the beginning of 2020, I did several local television appearances and I did several speeches and talks and and all of that. And, And it was just, I was just intentionally deciding that I wanted to put myself out there and do something more. And when social justice started to tickle my ear and then George Floyd died, then it just kind of all fell into place. And so that's what I've been doing ever since, which is, which is great. I, I love what I do. I'm really excited about what I do. I'm really passionate about it. But I've also had to be very cognizant of the fact that it is very draining for me and that I need to protect. I still need to protect my health. And I still need to protect not just my physical, but my mental health as well. And so I'm very aware of this. So I think everything just kind of fall has been falling into place with the understanding of all of those different things. Yeah. And you said once the coaching business started to pick up, you know, things started to look like, oh, okay, I've got I've got a job here. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be Ubering too much longer. What was the what is or what was the core message of your coaching business? Because I know some people go, oh, I help executives to do this and do that, or I help people to optimize their health. So what what is the the message of your coaching business? When I first started, I told myself I was going to stay open. That and that is something that I've learned through cancer, actually, is to stay open to the possibilities. Because when you're moving in a new direction, stay open. To the possibilities. And I've, it, there have been different iterations for personal development and it was overcoming hardships. It was building a business. But where I am right now is I help business leaders. So whether you're a CEO or you're a team leader in your organization, I help business leaders to understand how equity and inclusion help make the whole organization much stronger and much better. Um, a lot of people lead with diversity and I don't and I think that diversity is an outgrowth of creating an environment that is equitable and inclusive, an environment where people feel that they have the tools needed in order to succeed and that their voices are heard within that organization so that they can affect change or make progress within their desired fields. And so what I do is I help organizational leaders understand where they may be falling short and how they can mitigate that, how they can change that trajectory so that they can create environments that are much more welcoming and therefore become more diverse. And what's an example of this mission in purpose? So you've gone in, you've spoken to the high level team, the CEO and, and all them type of people, but what is the actions that they would have to take after this after you've kind of assessed what they might need? So what I do is after assessments, like I can go in and I can just do an assessment. So I can go in and I can say, okay, let me look at all of the policies, the procedures, everything that you have that's going on. Let me take a look at that and give you recommendations. Sometimes that's just where it ends. It's just kind of like, okay, we've got those recommendations. And and all recommendations come with why, a mm-hmm. why. This because of this, this because of this. Um, but I can also go in and say, okay, if we're going to work on this together, yeah. here are some of the things that need to happen, right? Here's some here's some of the ways that we can mitigate this. Um, as an example, if we're going, if I'm going in and I notice that your turnover is much higher with uh, people who have been marginalized than the people in white culture, then that's something that we need to look at from the very beginning, from the core. Mm. What is your 
first of all, what what is happening? Do you have a way to find out why these people are leaving? Because I'm sure that they have really good information for you to draw upon and not just make the assumption that they want to leave for random reasons. And I think a lot of times organizations think that things happen. Oh, well, that happened. <laughs> sometimes sometimes they measure and sometimes they don't. And I think that it's it's within their best interest to measure why people leave, especially if mostly people from marginalized communities leave at a higher rate, because that tells you that within your organization, there's something in your culture that is not allowing them to thrive or to be happy and healthy within that culture. So you have to take a look at that. Also, one of the first things you want to look at is, is pay equity. Is everyone getting paid in the same, anyone who's in the same position are they getting paid equitably? Did they start equitably? Hmm. Is there a reason why they're in equities? And look at the reasons that there are that there are inequities. Um, chances are, if you're looking at pay inequities, you're going to be able to pull out. And sad to say, you're going to be able to know who within that organization is from a marginalized community and who is not even without having a name attached to the salary that is being given. And that's a sad thing, right? So those are some of the things that you need to look at and that we kind of look at and go over and say, how do we create a process or a procedure, a plan that brings people in equitably so that there's no, oh, the person who's hiring looks at this person allows their bias to take over and say, well, that's a black woman. She shouldn't, she probably doesn't need as much pay. And it's not that conscious, right? It's that, that thinking is not that conscious. It is within the subconscious. It is simply something that kind of is, happens because so many of us, myself included, all of us, we have a lot of things that we do automatically based on the biases that we hold. And so how do you mitigate that? How do you put in a procedure that says, these are some of the questions we need to have asked, and we're looking at those answers, and this is the pay for this position. Therefore, whomever comes into that position, that's the pay that they're going to get, right? Um, so it's there there are a lot of nuances also with this work and sometimes that's the hardest part to translate to uh leaders because leaders want studies and numbers and reports and and things like that whereas I know having been a black woman all my life uh there are nuances to this and there are things that people who are doing reports or who are taking note don't even know to ask because it is not their reality. So there's so much information that really needs to get put out there. A lot of information that needs to be tapped into by tapping into people who are from marginalized communities. We, we cannot have white people coming in asking questions, not knowing what questions to ask, asking questions that are maybe textbook-based and who writes our textbooks. But that's another story. So textbook-based and then reporting and thinking that that is the full story. It is not possible, right? I, even as a Black woman, I cannot speak to what an Indigenous person goes through. I can simply talk to them and have them tell me. And one of the things that is missing, I feel, is 
allowing people to speak their own truths in that instead of a white person coming into a community, asking all the questions, taking that information, and then going out there to make money from it, what have you, um, taking people from that community and allowing them to speak their truth and allowing them to reap the benefits of that sharing that information. It is, it's so important and I think it gets lost. (laughs) Yeah. And what kind of made you so interested in the angle of inclusion and all this kind of stuff? Obviously you have your, your personal lived experiences, but what made Mm -hmm. you want to turn that into, you know, your, your life's mission? Because it started with the idea that there are so many words that get thrown around all the time that people don't understand and, but they will regurgitate them. Right. And so I felt that diversity had gotten watered down and got become a buzzword. Oh, diversity, diversity, diversity. When, you know, the, at the root, diversity simply means difference, right? Diversity just means that things are different. Okay, that's great. But when you bring in different people, but you have not created an environment for those people, different people to prosper, they're going to leave. So you're going to have your numbers one quarter and then the next quarter you're not. And then you're going to, again, go find people, fill that quota, the number that you want, and then they're going to leave because your environment does not is not conducive to keeping them. And I kept seeing that over and over and over again. And I thought, what is not happening for the quote unquote diversity to stay? And to me, it was well, they're not being given the tools that they need to stay. They're not giving, being given the same mentorship. They're not being given the same opportunities. They're being told to wait their turn, and then their turn never seems to come. So there are all these things, and that's not equitable. And so what if they were given the same mentorship? What if they were given the same opportunities? What if they were given the the, the benefit of the doubt that is often given to others that is not given to them and say, I believe that because they've been in this position, they have the capacity to do this other position, this higher position. What if, and all of that is equity. All of that is providing people with the tools and the resources and the support that they need in order to grow and to thrive in the position that they've been put into. And so I started to look at that and I go, that's the conversation that needs to be had. We shouldn't be counting people like, you know, like, like pennies. (laughs) We need a dollar. And so we have 90 cents. We need 10 cents that looks a little different. So let's just get those 10 people in. We shouldn't be counting people in that way. We should be creating an environment where people look at your organization and go, that looks like a place that will take me as I come and allow me to grow. That's what we need to be creating. And it's, you know, an inclusion. Inclusion is allowing people to speak and giving weight to what they say. Right. And if you're not doing that, if those two things are not present, you can keep rounding up, basically rounding up numbers, rounding up people. Okay, we've got we've got our numbers and they will always leave because they're not going to thrive there. You know, one thing I, I say all the time is the workplace was never designed for, quote unquote, diversity. The workplace was designed and still continues to be designed and is perpetuated for the white Christian heterosexual male. That is what the workplace is designed for. Women came in, they gave us a bathroom, but we had to fit in and we had to decide that we're going to do it the same way that they do it, right? Then 
people who have been marginalized come in and you have to do it the same way that they, that they do it. What we're talking about and what I'm talking about and advocating for is a revamping, a reimagining of the workplace that is not specific to the white heterosexual Christian male, but that is more, that it, that blossoms more, that is more expansive, that allows for the needs that different people have within the workplace to feel good. Because once we spend so much time at work and a lot of people go to work because they like the people that they work with. So if we're creating an environment where people are excited, not just about the people that they work with, but about the work that they're doing and the company that they are supporting, your turnover numbers are going to be much lower. So that's the workplace that we're imagining. That's the workplace that we want to get to and we want to create because that's the workplace of the future. The, we, we, the old ways have to fall away So we just need to get a better understanding of how the new way needs to work. And how do you know that? You ask, you talk to people and you say, what is it that you need that will help you get to where you're going? And and the avatar that you mentioned is, you know, the the white Christian heterosexual male. How can that person, you know, for lack of a better word, become an ally? What what kind of things can they do to have an, an impact on the things that they're actually, you know, Kind of, they're not they're not a problem, but they're part of the problem by by default. What can they do? Yeah, um, they have to learn to listen and fall back, and that is something that white heterosexual males have not had to do in their lives. Mm. People who have been marginalized know to fall back because we've been socialized in that way. And I don't really care what country you're from. We've we've been socialized to kind of fall back. Mm. They have to learn, understand that in order for them to be allies or co-conspirators or accomplices, whichever yeah. level you wish to put them in, They have to be able to hear the information, process the information, and and, and ask questions, relevant questions, to what is it that is needed and understand that they do not have the answers. The answers are with other people. So then fall back and allow those answers to come in and then not be the sole person to make the decisions, but know that it needs to be a kind of a group effort and have different people's voices matter and represented within the decisions that are made. Yeah. And on the other side of that, how can, you know, the the person who is kind of facing these difficulties, how can they make their situation easier or better outside of just opening up the conversation? What are things that can be done? Um, opening up the conversation at work. Yeah, <laughs> that's that that kind that tends to be a. It really depends on your 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 organization, mm. right? The level of psychological safety that you feel within your organization determines the whether or not you're even going to bring up any information, right? Any issues. Um, what I think is that people need to suss out their allies. We need to, to find the people within the organization that are already ready and willing to help us and then to trust that and to then have, I mean, if you want to have them speak for you or if you just want them, their support behind you, you have to know what it is that you're looking for and then make sure that that's what you're, you're going for. Um, it's a very interesting thing. It's kind of along the same lines, but I, 
there have been several stories that have come out here in the United States, and I don't know how it is where you are, but here in the United States where home appraisals, no matter where you are, if a if a Black family or Black face presents, then the home appraisal is a lot less than if it, if it is a white-facing person. And so uh, people have now begun asking their ally friends, their accomplice friends to stand in for them. Say, here, uh, we're having an appraisal. Please stand in for me. It's really about understanding who is really on your side, who is really there, and understanding that the way that the system works is working against you, but they can they can spend their privilege, which is what it's called. You can spend your privilege to help someone else knowing that the system is rigged towards you. Mm. And so you can use that rigging to kind of help someone else get get a leg up. Mm. And I guess with social justice and this kind of plight and this kind of thing, it's it's an ongoing thing, you know, it's it's been happening for years and years and decades and decades. <laughs> yes. But what what is the kind of ideal place you see us getting to in the next say five, ten years with your input and your work? Oof. Are you saying I'm going to change the whole world, Sam? <laughs> I, I mean, I'm just asking the questions. You know, you said that statement, not me. But if, if that's how you feel, then I would support you in that mission. 100%. You know, what I would love to see is that mostly when we're talking about, especially when we're talking about organizations, what I would love to see is that entrepreneurs as well as small business owners really gain an understanding of the power that they, they wield mm. entrepreneurs. Um, some entrepreneurs want to grow to larger companies, start where you are and begin to create a culture. Even if you're hiring one person, create that culture with that person and continue to perpetuate that same culture so that when you grow, you're already growing within the new paradigm versus the old paradigm. And examine, always examine how and what you're doing and why you're doing it the way that you're doing. And if it can be done differently, do it differently. Small businesses, same thing. Small businesses can grow into larger businesses, medium-sized businesses, big, big businesses. So when you're a small business, consider what you are cultivating and cultivate the culture that is in the new paradigm, the new paradigm being equitable and inclusive and therefore already positioned for diversity. Um, that's what I would like to see. I want to see in the next five years, I would love to see that more small businesses are talking about equity and inclusion and showing teams that are diverse and that are happy. Not just diverse in number, but that are actually happy and, and working well together, which then will translate to greater profits. But I've made it a point not to talk about how many profits are gained by having a diverse work group. Because if all you're doing it for is profits, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. So. We want to do that because it's the right thing to do. We want to do it because we want to see people, all people grow. We want to see equity, but we also want to see equality. We want to see growth in all markets, in all areas. And the only way to do that is to make sure that people are well taken care of as they have been traditionally, but as they need to be taken care of within mm -hmm. the organization so that they can grow. Ah, okay. One thing I wanted to ask you about, somewhere on your profile I saw this, it said, all women need to be, in air quotes, angry. Oh my gosh, you said that too. Somebody else said that to me and I was like, I don't remember writing that. I would never write something like that. Is that is that not something that you stand by or is that just kind of just something that popped up in the moment? Well, it might have been something that popped up in the moment. Maybe I was mad in the moment, angry in the moment. I don't know. I feel that all I I 
I think that if if I if I consider myself and I consider the context in which I might have written that, I'm writing it in terms of black women are often seen as angry. That was the right? angle that Ang- I thought you'd be coming from. Is, yeah. is the stereotype Ang- angle? Yeah, exactly. Right. A-, a black women are often seen as angry black women, but the the truth of the matter is, all women really should be angry. Because all women are, are bearing the brunt of the way that the, the, the system works. And so, and if you're not angry, you're not really paying attention because, because the system is rigged. It may be rigged more for me, but it's rigged for you as well. It's rigged for anyone who is not a white heterosexual male. So yeah. Um, I don't promote anger per se because I'm not I'm not an angry person, but there are times when I look at things and I go, God, I really we should all be angry. We should all be out in the streets, you know, fighting the stuff these things because because if we have children, whether we do or we don't, it doesn't matter. If we have if we have any vision for the future, then for future of women, for future of the planet, for just the future. If we have any vision for the future, we really ought to be doing something today. We can't be in the future doing it there. We have to be doing something today and we have to be really intentional about it. So if you look at me and you think that I'm an angry black woman, maybe you want to look at the reasons, the things that are upon my back that make me angry. But you may also need to look at the things that you really should be getting angry about and probably aren't because you're socialized to think that, oh, well, it's not my problem. <laughs> so that's right. <laughs> so that comes from there. Is so, there is there a time or kind of place where you've you've maybe kind of entered this kind of you know the, the quote unquote angry woman aesthetic that you that you said that needs to happen sometimes and actually regretted it because you might have felt like it was a bit too much. You know, I don't. For me personally, no, I haven't. Um, often, I get angry. But I'm I'm also a very introspective person. So if I'm angry, if I'm really angry, like I'll get an email and it just really ruffles my feather, I won't send an email back in that moment. Um, I know better because I know that what's going to be coming out is not going to be what I want to say. It's just going to be the whole emotion of it all. So I tend to allow space. And if that that space could be an hour and that space could be a week, but I tend to try to allow space so that when I come back, I have a more gathered perspective on what it is I want to say. And even though it may still be angering, I've gone through the, the initial fire of it. Now it's just kind of burning embers and I can kind of handle it a little bit better. Um, so no, I haven't... I haven't, you know, been angry outright and then regretted it, um, you know. But different people have different personalities, and it ha- it happens, right? <laughs> I think one of the things that we need to normalize is the ability for women, no matter who they are, to have the emotions that they have and to not equate those emotions with with weakness because that has been a paradigm for a long time. So if I am angry, allow me to be angry. If I'm hurt, allow me to be hurt. If I'm sad, allow me to be sad. Do not use it against me Mm -hmm. as if I don't have the right to have it. And yet I'm watching someone else do way worse and there it's okay for them to have it. Right. That's, you know, the equality here. We want, we want to be, (laughs) we want to be able to just simply be human. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like sometimes that people forget that, you know, most people they need to counter are humans. You know, I say most because obviously there's animals that exist in the world, but but 
you seem really passionate and involved with your kind of mission of making social justice and inclusion more apparent in, you know, obviously in your case, the American workforce. But one thing I want to ask you about is what is it about that you do that brings you the most joy? What is it about what I do that brings me the most joy? When I see someone shift in paradigm, when I hear from someone, oh my gosh, I never really thought of it that way, but the way that you said it, it just made so much sense. That brings me a lot of joy because it's a seed, right? If it could be the first one, it could be the 10th one, but it also means that they're thinking about it. And now if I can get you thinking about it and possibly going and doing your own research about it and learning about it, I feel that that gives, brings me a lot of joy because I feel that that means that you are on a different path than you probably previously were. And so that excites me. Where can the listeners find you online? Um, thank you, Sam, for this opportunity to be here. It has been such a pleasure to speak with you. People can find me at diversitydish.com with Diversity Dish, which is the name of my podcast as well. And I use that because it's much easier to remember than Cedrolo Maruska. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> I wish I do have cedrolomaruska.com. But diversitydish.com has all the information. It has my podcast information, has my speaker information, has my consulting and coaching information. So doing that is the best way. And then you can always find me on socials. I'm on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Thank you for listening to People Explained. New episodes come out every Monday. We would appreciate it if you gave us a review on Apple Podcasts and shared this episode with a friend. 